Mark chapter 9, we begin reading at verse 33. We read this in connection with Lord's Day 4 of the Heidelberg Catechism. We're going to focus in on uh, the eternal wrath of God in hell. And in this passage in Mark 9, Jesus gives instruction regarding the reality of hell. Mark 9, beginning at verse 33. And he came to Capernaum, and being in the house, he asked them, What was it that ye disputed among yourselves by the way? But they held their peace, for by the way they had disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and saith unto them, If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all, and servant of all. And he took a child and set him in the midst of them, And when he had taken him in his arms, he said unto them, Whosoever shall receive one of such children in my name receiveth me. And whosoever shall receive me receiveth not me, but him that sent me. And John answered him, saying, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and he followed not us. And we forbade him, because he followeth not us. But Jesus said, Forbid him not, for there is no man which shall do a miracle in my name that can lightly speak evil of me. For he that is not against us is on our part. For whosoever shall give you a cup of water to drink in my name, because ye belong to Christ, verily I say unto you, he shall not lose his reward. And whosoever shall offend one of these little ones that believe in me. It is better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and he were cast into the sea. And if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. Notice that language, the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. We'll look at that in the preaching. And if thy foot offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter halt into life than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. For every one shall be salted with salt, with fire, and every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. Salt is good, but if the if the salt have lost his saltness, wherewith will ye season it? Have salt in yourselves, and have peace one with another. So far we read God's holy and infallible word. It's on the basis of this passage of Scripture, and on the basis of many passages of Scripture, that we have the teaching of Lord's Day 4 of the Heidelberg Catechism, found on page 4 
in the back of the Psalter. Lord's Day 4. Doth not God then do injustice to man by requiring from him in his law that which he cannot perform? Not at all. For God made man capable of performing it. But man, by the instigation of the devil and his own willful disobedience, deprived himself and all his posterity of those divine gifts. Will God suffer such disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished? By no means. But is terribly displeased with our original as well as actual sins and will punish them in his just judgment temporally and eternally, as he hath declared, Cursed is every one that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Is not God then also merciful? God is indeed merciful, but also just. Therefore his justice requires that sin which is committed against the most high majesty of God be also punished with extreme, that is, with everlasting punishment of body and soul. Beloved congregation in our Lord Jesus Christ, we are in the first section of the Heidelberg Catechism, and we are looking at how great our sin and misery is. So far in our study, we've looked at the reality of total depravity. From Lord's Day 2, you saw that man is, by nature, totally depraved, as we read in Lord's Day 2. Man is prone by nature to hate God and his neighbor. Entirely incapable he is of keeping God's law, and he is entirely incapable of even wanting to keep God's law. Because, as Romans 8 verse 7 says, the carnal mind is enmity against God. From Lord's Day 3, we saw not only the reality of total depravity, but we saw that man is also entirely responsible for this total depravity. God did not originally create man this way, but man brought this corruption of his nature upon himself through the rebellion and fall of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise. And such is this total depravity that except God perform graciously that wonder work of regeneration, there is absolutely no way of escaping this misery. Of ourselves, we lie in the midst of sin and death. Now this morning, as we come to Lord's Day 4, Lord's Day 4 adds something to that misery. Lord's Day 4 adds something because here in Lord's Day 4, the Catechism says, not only are you totally depraved by nature, but you stand, eternal, you stand exposed to the eternal wrath of God. Here in Lord's Day 4, the Catechism says, not only are you entirely corrupt in your sinful nature, and that itself is misery, being dead in sins and trespasses, but you are guilty. You are guilty. You sinned against the law of God, and the punishment for sin is the wrath of God. Because you've committed sin, you are the object of God's wrath. You've robbed God of His glory, You've rebelled against him, and he is a righteous God. He will not wink at sin. He is a holy God, and he will execute the proper punishment for the transgression of his commandments. Now, obviously, that adds something to our misery, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. Now, as an aside, 
to further explain this, let me point something out. Back home in Randolph, one thing that I emphasize to the catechism students is that Jesus delivers us from our sin and misery through a two-step process. And the catechism students know this well. Jesus takes away the guilt of our sin by shedding his blood on the cross as a sacrifice. And Jesus takes away the corruption or pollution of our sin by regenerating us and sanctifying us by the work of his Holy Spirit. And that's a lifelong work of Jesus. So Jesus needs to deliver us both from the guilt of our sin and the corruption of our sin. And here with Lord's Day 4, still in the first section of the Catechism, we begin to see why that twofold deliverance is necessary. Because here in Lord's Day 4, we see that not only are we totally depraved by nature, but we are guilty. So there's two steps to Jesus' work of delivering us because there's two ways in which sin has affected us. We become guilty before God's law, worthy of punishment. And part of that punishment is spiritual death. That was the consequence immediately in the fall. And then, not only, so we're totally depraved, we're in, dead in sins and trespasses, and then there's the further guilt that we stand exposed to the temporal and eternal wrath of God. And Jesus needs to deliver us then both from the guilt of our sin and the corruption of our sin. This morning, as we look at Lord's Day 4, we concentrate on the topic of hell. That's the, the way that we will approach Lord's Day 4 this morning. See the misery from this point of view that belonging to ourselves, belonging to ourselves, we stand exposed to the eternal fires of hell. And we're going to look at the topic of hell in detail this morning, ultimately so that we might see Christ more clearly and we might see the wonder work that Christ did for us through his own suffering of the agonies of hell in our place. We take as our theme, more misery, the everlasting punishment of hell. We look at three things. First, the fearful reality. We look at hell itself. Second, we look at the divine justice, that God is just in sending man to hell. And then third, the only hope. We see Jesus Christ as the Savior from this aspect of sin and misery too. Although Lord's Day 4 does not use the word hell it's clear that Lord's Day 4 is making reference to hell. And so we ask this morning, what is hell? Hell can be described in a few different ways. Hell is the place of eternal punishment. Hell is the place of eternal punishment where everlasting suffering will be experienced in body and soul. Where everlasting Suffering will be experienced in body and soul as God's just vengeance upon the sin that has been committed against His Most High Majesty. Hell is the place where the wicked reprobate bear the full brunt of God's curse upon them. Now, to be sure, already now, the wicked are under the full curse of God. But hell is the place where God's curse is spoken upon the wicked in all its power and fury. In the Bible, there are especially three words that are used to refer to hell. And those three words are used to describe two different ideas of what hell is. Two outstanding pictures of hell. First, there are the two words, Sheol and Hades. And these two words kind of go together. Now these two words, Sheol and hell, are words that can also refer to the grave. 
And that can also refer to physical death, but they can also refer to hell. And sometimes when you cross, come across these words in Scripture, both in the Old Testament and New Testament, you have to determine whether the word is referring to the grave and physical death or whether it's referring to the place we call hell. But when those words, Sheol and Hades, are, referred to, are referring to hell, they especially picture hell as a grave. That's, that's the idea behind the word, hell as a grave. Hell is a deep abyss where there's no light, there are no windows, but there's only outer darkness. Hell, according to this picture, is a, a claustrophobic, terrifying, lonely place where there's no friendship, but only torment and weeping and gnashing of teeth. According to these words, Sheol and Hades, hell is a shameful place where death, having defeated a man, strips him bare and consumes him eternally. Hell is a bottomless pit. Those words, Hades and Sheol, especially refer to hell as the place where the souls of the wicked go after they die. It's the place where the souls go immediately after death and before Christ's second coming. That's especially the idea of those words, Sheol and Hades, the intermediate state of the wicked, we might say, after death and before Christ's second coming. And these words especially picture hell as a grave. Second, the third word, there's the word Gehenna. And this word Gehenna is the word most commonly used by Jesus. In Mark chapter 9, the passage we read, when Jesus speaks of hell, that's the word he's using there, Gehenna. This word Gehenna is the word that more properly refers to the place where both the body and the soul of the wicked go after the final judgment. In fact, in the book of Revelation, this hell, Gehenna, is actually the place where death and Hades are thrown into. Death and the grave are thrown into Gehenna, the final place of the wicked. Gehenna is the lake of fire. This word Gehenna is a word that literally means the valley of Gehenna. And the valley of Gehenna was the deep valley outside of Jerusalem on the south side of the city. Maybe you remember it was in this valley that King Ahaz and King Manasseh offered their children to Molech in the fire. This valley was the place where gross wickedness had taken place. Now in order to prevent these kinds of abominations from happening again, godly King Josiah turned that valley of Henna into the city's garbage dump. So now instead of a place of all kinds of wicked idolatry, this valley of Gehenna was the place where all the garbage and the excrement and animal carcasses and corpses of criminals were discarded. And because this is where everyone brought their garbage to be burned, there was also always a fire that was burning in that valley, in that garbage den. And because of all the garbage and excrement and rotting flesh, there were also worms there. This was a place that was characterized by worms and by fire. And that became a picture of hell. That's why in the passage we read this morning, Mark chapter 9, Jesus refers to hell as the place where the fire shall never be quenched and the place where the worm dieth not. He says that three times. 
That's what hell is. Hell is compared to a garbage dump where there's a fire that never goes out and where the worms never die because your body never ceases to exist and the worms keep eating your body and the fire keeps burning your body. And that's well, your body and soul. That's, that's picture language, we understand. And, that, and what that language emphasizes is that hell is for eternity. The language is implying that the wicked are constantly being burned up and eaten up by worms in the garbage dump. But they never come to the end of it. The fire keeps on burning. The worms keep on eating because the wicked in hell keep on existing. From other passages of scripture, we learn more. In Matthew 25, verse 41, Jesus describes hell as the place prepared for the devil and his angels. In Luke 16, verses 22 and 23, Jesus describes hell as a place where the sinner is being tormented by fire. In Jude 13, we read that those who go to hell experience the black of darkness. That's very striking language. They experience the blackness of darkness. In Revelation 20, verse 6, hell is described as the second death. And in Revelation 20, verse 14, we read that death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. Death and the grave were cast into Gehenna. And that is the second death. Hell is the place where God rejects the ungodly in his wrath. Hell is the place where the sinner is left alone with his sins, where God's wrath is poured out upon the sinner for all his sin. Now in hell, there will be degrees of punishment. That's clear when Jesus says that it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than it will be for the cities of Bethsaida and Capernaum. There are different degrees in hell just as there are different degrees in heaven. Every person shall be rewarded according to his works. But whatever the degrees of hell are, hell is the place where there is absolutely no enjoyment of God, but there is only one wave after another of God's wrath rolling over the sinner. Hell is the place where all peace is removed, all joy is removed, and there is only unmixed sorrow. And there is no reprieve, there is no relief, there is no let up. To experience hell is to be filled with horror. It is to be filled with perfect hopelessness and despair and darkness as the fire of God's wrath fills both body and soul and punishes the body and soul for the sins that have committed have been committed in that body and soul. Now to really impress upon us the reality and sorrow and misery of hell, let me put this question before you. In hell, will the wicked be sinning against God? really a sad question, but from another point of view, it's an interesting question. In hell, will the wicked still be rebelling against God, shaking their fist against God, speaking wickedly of God for all eternity? What do you think? Well, there are differences of opinion here, but let me try to show you the absolute misery and horror of hell by giving you this answer, no. That's the answer I come to, at least. In hell, the wicked will not be rebelling against God. The wicked will not be shaking their fist against God. 
The wicked won't have time for that. The wicked won't be able to do that because the wicked will be so oppressed by the wrath of God, so consumed by the wrath of God, so destroyed by the wrath of God in hell that they will not be able to exert any energy on their part in rebellion against God. To put it another way, we can say this, the wicked in hell will not enjoy the wicked hellish satisfaction of committing sin against God. That's not what hell will be like. Sometimes we think of hell that way. That's not what hell will be like. Hell is punishment. What is true is this. In hell, the wicked will be confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2 verses 9 and 11 Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In hell, the idolatry of the wicked will be put away and the wicked will know that God is God alone They will know that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior who was promised. All their attacks against Jesus will cease. Their mouths will be shut. In their hearts, they will be be unable to avoid confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. And in the perfect knowledge of who Jesus is as Lord, they will be overcome with unutterable fear and spiritual anguish, dread, horror, terror, distress, and pain and utter hopelessness. So when I say that the wicked will not be sinning in hell, what I do not mean is that the wicked will be given a better human nature and they will be able to do the good. That's not the case at all. But what I mean to emphasize is this. In hell, the wicked will be destroyed. They will be destroyed, first of all, in the sense that they will be brought low. They will be overcome with shame and guilt and sorrow fully conscious of who Jesus is as Lord, and they will see just how truly offensive their sins were. And then in hell, the wicked will also be racked with a guilty conscience. They will be forever condemning themselves for the works they committed in the flesh. They will decry the sinfulness and utter foolishness of how they lived in the world, and they will be wholly consumed in the activity of bearing the wrath of God against them. In an article in the Standard Bearer, Reverend George Opoff puts it this way. I think this was helpful for me. The wicked in hell will not receive a better human nature, but their sinful nature will be, quote, dried up, so to say. Their sinful nature will be dried up, so to say. And the idea is this. In hell there will be no idolatry, no adultery, no blaspheming God's name, no lusting after the flesh. There will be nothing of that sort, nothing in the way of positive, active sinning, if we may use that language. But in hell, the wicked will be passive, passively bearing the wrath of God. And that wrath of God will so consume their whole being, the fire of God's God's wrath will burn so intensely in their body and soul, in their mind and their heart, their whole nature, that there will be nothing left for them to do in the way of positive activity. They will be so overwhelmed with God's wrath, they can't do anything in the way of positive sin. In hell, the reprobate will be just as devoted to God as the redeemed will be devoted to God in heaven. 
But they won't be devoted to God in the way of enjoying God, but they will be devoted to God in the way of bearing his wrath and even speaking of his excellency in punishing them. And that will be to the honor of God's name. We must not think that in the eternal state, hell will be like this dark cloud, this unfortunate reality that exists where we have heaven and and then there's like this mistake that God had made so that hell is now this eternal reality. That's Sometimes we might be inclined to think that way. Hell is not going to be a blot in the ages to come. But hell will be that place where God's name is being magnified as the wicked themselves confess God's justice in pouring out his wrath upon them. That's the reality of hell. In hell, the wicked will only be able to identify themselves the way that God identifies them. There will be no escaping the truth. There, there will be no searing of their consciences with a hot iron. There will be no deception, no manipulation, no living in lies. But they will have to come to tru- terms with the truth. They are the idolater. They are the blasphemer, the Sabbath desecrator, the thief, the fornicator. And they will be racked with the extreme anguish that will come from knowing that this is how the good and glorious majestic God of heaven and earth sees them at every moment of their existence. Maybe if I can put it this way. Congregation, when you sin against God, and God causes you to feel his anger, that's the most horrible feeling in all the world. Your conscience is pricked, and you suddenly feel scared, perhaps hopeless, because you know who God is, and you've seen God's glory and God's holiness And unless you know you have Jesus as your Savior and you hide yourself in Him, you feel frightened at the terrible wrath of God. That's what the wicked will experience in hell in every moment, world without end, with the knowledge that there is no hope of deliverance because the day of deliverance has passed. Ultimately, we should understand that Just as no one can imagine the glories of heaven that are reserved for God's people in Christ, so no one can imagine the horrors of hell reserved for the wicked in their sin. And if I may add something more, let me say this. The wicked experience this kind of misery already now, in part. Already now God's wrath is falling upon them. Already now God's curse is upon the wicked and he's bringing his judgment upon the wicked. Yes, the wicked shake their fist against God in hell. God will bring that to an end. But even though the wicked can still shake their fists against God while on the earth, God is still bringing his wrath upon them. God does that, first of all, by giving the wicked no peace. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked, saith the Lord to the wicked. The wicked experience that they have no peace with God. They don't know the joy of God's smile. They don't know the joy of going up to God's house. They don't have clean consciences. They are bitter, angry, resentful, selfish, and proud people. That's why they sear their consciences with a hot iron. That's why our culture is doing what it's doing today. Because they want to drive out God out of their life. Because they have no peace when they come face to face with God. They run in sin to try to block God out of their lives. And they try to run away from the reality of who God is. In hell, God will bring all of that to an end. The consciences of the wicked will be no longer seared, but they will hear 
and they will understand and they will experience with full clarity the reality of God's wrath against them for their sin. But already now, God is judging them. And mostly, God judges the wicked by giving them over to their sin. God judges them in many ways. All the sorrows of this life are expressions of God's wrath against the wicked. For us who are God's children, the sorrows and troubles of life are chastisements. We heard that last week's Sunday afternoon. Chastisements or, or instruments God uses to refine us and bless us. But for the wicked, that's the experience of God's wrath, meant to punish and destroy. And God also judges the wicked by giving them over to their sins. They, they fill their cup of iniquity. And we need to understand, if this is how the wicked are, being, are filling up their cup of iniquity, by God giving them over to their sin, then how can we possibly speak of these kinds of things as God's common grace to them? I think we understand that now clearer too. God gives the wicked good things. He gives them many good things, marvelous things. But with those good things, the wicked only increase their sin. And by doing so, they reserve to themselves more judgment in hell and a greater degree of God's wrath. And God knows these things. God even gives the wicked these things in order to set their feet in slippery places so that their cup of iniquity is filled. In Adam, the whole human race plunged itself under the curse of God. Unless that curse is taken away from us through the blood of the one who bears that curse for us in our place, that curse remains upon us. And for the wicked then, who have no substitute, how can we speak about these things, these good gifts God gives them, as part of God's grace? It's not grace at all. Let us understand, for those who are outside of Jesus Christ, for those whose end will be hell, there is no grace from God. Indeed, for the wicked unbeliever, the sorrows and pains of this life are only a foretaste of the greater agonies of hell that are yet to come. Now why why go into this at length? Well, let me remind you, congregation, this is our misery. This is our state And this is our condition when left to ourselves without a Savior who delivers us from our sin and misery. This is the reality of where we stand with God when left to ourselves. God's curse is upon us. God's wrath is upon us. And in God's judgment, He punishes our sin both temporally and eternally. This is true for all of us. If we are left to ourselves... And if we don't find our refuge in Jesus Christ. That's, that's why we go. That's partly why we go into such detail this morning. This is our misery. When we don't have a Savior. Now all of this is quite something. And all of this leads us to consider the question. Is God right in doing this? Is God just in all of this? What about divine justice? Well, some will dare to say, no, God would not be just in doing something like this. For first of all, they would say, the punishment hardly fits the crime. Why should a temporal sin 
a sin committed in time, a sin of such short duration, be punished with such extreme, that is, everlasting punishment of body and soul? Doesn't, in fact, the Bible say an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? Why then should my sin of such short duration be punished with such extreme punishment of body and soul? And then second of all, someone might say, well, but what about God's love and God's mercy? Isn't God a God of love? And doesn't an eternity of hell come off as being needlessly cruel on the part of God? In fact, someone might say, doesn't the Bible tell us that God does not repay us according to our iniquities, and and that God is slow to anger and abundant in mercy? Well, in the face of all these kinds of objections, what we need to confess is that God is absolutely right and just. He is praiseworthy in the punishment that he carries out upon the wicked. We understand the problem is not with God. It never is. The problem is with us. And the problem is this we fail to see just how great and heinous our sin is. And that's true for you and me, congregation. No one here this morning appreciates how offensive his or her sin actually is. And the Heidelberg Catechism gets right to the heart of the matter when it says that sin which is committed against the most high majesty of God must be also punished with extreme. That is, with everlasting punishment of body and soul. This is sin against the Most High, infinitely majestic God. The point is, we don't appreciate how deeply sinful the character of sin is. Sin is not just a weakness. Sin is not just a failing. Sin is not just a lack or a mistake or a temporary imperfection. Rather, in its origin, in its essence, sin is lawlessness. It is a revolting against God. It is rebellion and hostility against God. It is warfare against God. Every time we sin, sin is itself an attack on the justice of God and the love of God. It's an attack on the very existence of God. That's what sin is. And no one can talk about the justice of God with regard to hell unless he first talks about the injustice of his own sin against God. That's where the conversation needs to start. The injustice of my own sin against God. In addition, as I pointed out already, we're talking here about hostility against the most high majesty of God. God who is the only source of all good. God who is the only good God. Who is absolutely entitled to all our worship and all our love and all our obedience, infinitely worthy of all our dedication. In addition to that, we must remember that God originally created man good and upright after his own image, perfectly capable of performing all these requirements of his law. We have no excuse And all these demands of the law still remain upon us even though we've fallen into sin. We've made ourselves unable to keep these demands, but we still need to keep them perfectly. That's God's justice. In addition to that, we must remember that God himself does not somehow take joy merely in the act of sending people to hell. We need to appreciate that. We need to Perhaps be a little careful here, but the point is 
the biblical doctrine of hell has nothing to do with the divine cruelty or vindictiveness that takes delight in the condemnation of the wicked in the same way that God delights to show mercy. Let me, let me repeat that. The biblical doctrine of hell has nothing to do with a divine cruelty or vindictiveness that takes delight in the condemnation of the wicked in the same way that God delights in showing mercy. What I mean is this. The reason God saves some people is because God is a God of mercy. He delights in mercy. But the reason God sends others to hell is not because God is also a God of cruelty. No. The fact is, the pain God inflicts in hell is not in and of itself an object of pleasure for him. But it is a means for glorifying his virtues. The pain God inflicts in hell is not in and of itself an object of pleasure for him, but it is a means for glorifying his virtues, and he takes pleasure in that. The reality is this. If God did not send the wicked to hell, God would be denying his own justice and his own glory. God created man good and upright. Man chose to sin. Man wasn't forced to sin. Man chose to sin, and God gave the clear warning, the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Man made himself wicked, and the punishment is God's wrath. So that now, if God does not pour out his wrath upon the sinner, well, God is not a just God. Neither is he a holy God, devoted to his glory like he ought to be. But God cannot deny who he is as the God of justice and the God of holiness. The reason God sends the wicked to hell for eternity is because of what God's justice demands. This is, this is sin against God we're talking about. The infinite God, who is of infinite majesty, the maker of heaven and earth. Our sin is of infinite transgression. And God is honored. And his justice is honored. And he is to be praised to all eternity for the punishment of eternal hell he inflicts upon the wicked. But now, again, congregation, why do I spend my time on this? Let me point out, this is what we deserve for our sins. This is the just punishment that you and I stand exposed to if left to ourselves. Every single one of our sins must be punished. God's justice demands it. Our original sin in Father Adam must be punished. God's justice demands it. And the punishment required is not a slap on the wrist, but extreme, that is, everlasting punishment of body and soul in hell. God's justice demands it. And this is to the praise of God's name. Anything less than perfect justice is a blemish on God. Yes, God is merciful, but he is also just. And God's mercy will not displace the justice of God. They go together. This is the seriousness of our sins, beloved. That's the point. This is our sin and this is our misery, our absolute, our absolute hopelessness in and of ourselves. It should cause you to shudder, to quake in your shoes. This is reality. What is our hope? Do we have any hope? 
Not in ourselves, beloved. Not in ourselves. But our hope is in the name of Jesus Christ. Our hope, our confidence, is in the fact that we belong to Jesus Christ. This is the wonder of who Jesus is and what he did. He is the one who is God himself, God himself, who came into our flesh and who took that curse that was upon us and he took it freely upon himself. And he is the one who suffered under that wrath of God about which we've just been speaking that wrath of God in our place as our substitute. And he is the one who bore all the agonies of hell on the cross for us. He was the one banished from the smile of God. He was the one lashed with all the blows of God's holy wrath, those blows which should have been directed against us. And the reason that we went into such detail on the topic of hell this morning is to see more clearly who Jesus is and what he has done for us. He is the one and he is the only one who could make the atonement because with his blood, which is of infinite value, because it's the blood of God himself come in the flesh, with his blood he has made the full payment. He's satisfied God's justice And he's covered all our sins. He is the one who especially in his pain and agony on the cross descended into the deep pit of hell. And he passed through. He descended into hell and he passed through that darkness of the valley of death. The the blackness of darkness. And he's the one who emerged on the other side victorious. Having paid the wages of sin his soul could not be kept in hell, nor his body allowed to see corruption. And because Jesus endured the shame of hell, that shame of hell, suffering its inexpressible anguish, pains, terrors, and agonies under the wrath of God, he has delivered. He has delivered all who find their refuge in him. And this is our hope. This is our comfort this morning and every day we belong to Jesus Christ. He's the one who satisfied God's justice. And he is the one through whom God also shows his mercy. For in Jesus Christ, the righteousness and mercy of God have kissed each other. On the cross, we see the justice and mercy of God in perfect display. That's why we worship God. Because he's great in and of himself, even if he... Even if he hadn't chosen to save us, he'd still be worthy of all our praise. How much more now should we not be praising him as the people of his pasture and the sheep of his flock? Well, to any who are here this morning who are yet in your sins, I call you this morning urgently with the serious call, repent and turn from your sin and believe in the name of Jesus Christ. Flee from the wrath to come. All men must appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. And it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. I call you urgently this morning, repent of your sins, you who do not find your comfort yet in Christ. 
Seek your hope and your salvation only in Jesus Christ. He alone is the one who holds the keys of death and of hell. He is the one who has conquered the grave. Seek your hope and salvation only in Jesus Christ or perish in the everlasting fires of hell. Do not be numb to the reality of hell. Except ye repent, ye will likewise perish. That's the reality for all who die outside of Jesus Christ. Call upon the name of the Lord. Turn to the Lord in true faith. Forsake your sin and ye shall find mercy and ye shall be saved. Because our God, the Creator, is the God of mercy who delights in mercy. And He is the God of overflowing grace. And He has shown that in His Son, Jesus Christ. O congregation, for you who know Jesus Christ, may the sight of Jesus Christ and what He has done throw your heart and may we give Him the fitting praise that He is worthy of today on the Sabbath day and going forward with all our strength, giving Him our praise for the wondrous works He has done for us His people. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, what a blessed thing it is to be able to call upon Thee with such a name, our Father for Christ's sake. Thy wrath is terrible and great. Thou art a holy and reverent God. O Lord, we thank Thee for giving us Jesus. We thank Thee that in His name we have a full and complete remission of all our sins. And we have peace with Thee. O Lord, exalt the name of Jesus in our hearts and in our lives more and more. And through this preaching, may we see more and more of the wonder of the gospel. Strengthen our faith that we might understand more and more what it means that we belong to Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. We sing together Psalter number 232.